Hi, I'm Garrett, and welcome to The Conversation. I think conversation is one of the most important tools we have for building and maintaining genuine relationships. In the age of the internet and social media, the conversation is a dying art. While we're technically more connected than ever, it seems more difficult than ever to engage with alternative perspectives in a meaningful way. We talk past each other and speak totally different languages without even knowing it. This show is my attempt at working on that problem. I'm trying to learn how to have meaningful conversation and practice what I learn. It's partly an experiment. Maybe if I start having more difficult conversations, I can get better at it. Maybe we can all get better at it. I don't know how this experiment's going to turn out, but hey, this could be interesting. Part of part of the reason, I mean, I even in my comment, I kind of mentioned like, this is, I, I found your article really, really interesting and really meaningful, but I found it like, it took a lot of focus to like try to make sure I was following along with what you were doing because, I mean, you were yeah. bridging some pretty big gaps. I mean, fundamentally, it seemed kind of like the article is sort of syncret syncretistic syncretism. I'm not sure how to, how to yeah. <laughs> make that I mean, an adjective. I hope it's not syncretic. I think syncretic typically is about like pulling things together that don't necessarily fit. Um, well, okay, if that's part of the definitions that they don't fit, then sure. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you're certainly trying to bridge some gaps between like Christianity and Buddhism and it seems like Hinduism and just spirituality in general, right? Yeah, just, just a bit, yeah. Um, Mainly with Buddhism because of the conversation with John. Yeah. Um, Though I noticed, um, I mean, I made kind of a list of the, f yeah. like the, the way you started out the whole article was like, you know, you established this kind of cosmic threeness that all yeah. of all of these religions tend to tend to start with, even yeah. wh whether or not they're religious or not, because I think this goes into like Verveke's perspective too is like this, but it's, it's not uh, intrinsically, or he's not trying to be religious with his cosmology. Mm -hmm. But like, there's like a trinity that shapes reality, essentially. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, and you're, you're kind of relating it to the trinity, right? Although I think yeah. you do it slightly differently. But let, let me just kind of read through really quick. Yeah. I can read your first paragraph, or actually I kind of listed it out here. You have, so there's three categories, right? We have the, yeah. uh, we have emptiness or sunyata. I'm not sure if those are the same thing exactly. Is that, is that right? Emptiness and sunyata are, are essentially, sunyata is like a, a kind of extreme emptiness. I think if I, if I recall, um, like you go through emptiness to get to sunyata. It's sort of a state. Um, okay. Uh, yeah. But emptiness I don't at least. I, I don't use those terms often enough. I would have yeah. to actually check to, to be sure. Uh, <laughs> I just but, started reading Nishitani's thing too, and, yeah. and, and I was getting to that word, and I was like, what, what is it? There's so much yeah. terminology. I mean, that was partially what I found was really great, even just about the introduction to this this article, is that you you, mm -hmm. you make some... You, you tie up all these different, all this terminology from all these different traditions, and kind of mm -hmm. suddenly make it make sense a little bit if you have some exposure to some of those words. Yeah, but well, it's a um, it's a really useful framework. I don't go into a full fledged defense of it because it would require sort of its own article, really. And right. I've also explained at least bits and pieces of it elsewhere. So I just refer people to David Bentler's yeah. book, like if they want all the details, but like the basic framework is super powerful. Yeah. Uh, 
like there's there's potential and there's a ground of being you can call, in different religions i've called it differently but like there's a place from which you see potential and but this potential doesn't just sort of happen willy-nilly there are constraints on it there's intelligible constraints on it and then other traditions and traditions again have different ways of speaking about this yeah. constraining like whether it's consciousness whether it's the intellect it's uh, the logos like you always have like some top-down thing that constrains the potential yeah. and then the third category that remains is the, the meat like what exactly makes those two ends meet and yeah or like a mediator between them yeah i don't know if mediator is it's at, it's at least where they're meeting so whether or not maybe mediator yeah. implies a little bit of something extra it's kind of their finality too i don't know if yeah i don't know if mediator works with well See, I, I want to see if, if this works, because I, I, you, you did five yeah. examples here, and I want to try and talk yeah. through all five of those and then talk about ten more, if I can, and uh, <laughs> see, see if that helps to kind of... Because if, if you've, like, read a little bit of Buddhist stuff or if you've, like, been deep in this symbolic world community following, like, Peugeot's work, or you start to kind of develop some familiarity with these, these concepts, but I want to see if we can kind of build that from the ground up and make sure it mm -hmm. totally makes sense, yeah. even if you don't yeah. have... A, I mean, we, we've got some time here. I don't, I don't know how late you can go, but... I but. can do... It, well, it depends on how it goes and how focused I can keep. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But I have much more time than last time because sure. now it's like we started pretty early, so that's yeah. that's better at least. But I mean, if I get fried, then it's over. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so at least of the bet, I have more time. Yeah. So let's start with the, the five that you, you talked about. So these are five different traditions, the Buddhism and then Verveki's kind of worldview and then Christianity, Taoism, um, and... I think maybe this other one's David Bentley Hart and then Hinduism. So Buddhism's yeah. is they have emptiness, which is just the ground of being, which is just like the yeah. uh, the the energy of life that has not been shaped yet or something like that. And then yeah. Dharma is like is the constraints on that emptiness yeah. when yeah. it becomes manifest. And then enlightenment yeah. is sort of the meeting of those two. Is that right? It's a good question. I'm not sure that they have I don't know what exactly the category would be for the meeting in Buddhism. I didn't include it in the third category. Yeah. Maybe it would be like, a, I don't know if you've gotten to this part of um, Nishitani's book, but he talks about um, King Samadhi, or sometimes it could also maybe be Sunyata, but okay. like there, there's a place where you get to unite emptiness with Dharma, I guess, where you see like the whole hierarchy fit together. And... This would be the, the the third term. I didn't dig into it as much for this one because uh, David Benfer doesn't bring Buddhism into this third one. I think so. Uh, I didn't rely that much into Buddhism for the this third step, though. Okay. Yeah. It's it it's just it seems you can, you can kind of you can kind of uh, assume that it goes there. Like you've established these two categories and they're in some sort of relationship, so you, you can name that relationship somehow. Maybe, yeah. maybe yeah. I'm not sure if this is a specific Buddhist term. Okay, but then yeah. so I think Verveki's terminology. I think this is Verveki's right. His ground of being and ground of intelligibility are those words he coined. Yeah, yeah. For uh, the first two sides, yes. Okay, and then relevance realization is their meeting. Yes, exactly. So ground of being again is just this. It's, it's being before it's been shaped, and then intelligibility. Yeah. Okay, so before, in order to understand anything, it needs to be intelligible. In order for it to, it's like I was thinking a little bit about this, just as far as like consciousness, or like even thinking about your symbolic perception article. It's like before mm -hmm. you can perceive the world, it has to kind of pass through a, a filter of what you can understand about reality. Yeah, and so like you see yeah. some animal or, or i mean you see some moving thing and before you even know what it is 
you have to begin to categorize it a little bit. Oh, and it's an animal. Okay, well, what color is it? Oh, it's a green animal. Maybe it's a lizard, right? So all, all those yeah. things about what you can understand about reality or what yeah, yeah. make it possible the, to understand it. Yeah, and there's the idea that this like this ground of intelligibility is shaping the very being of things. Like even when I'm not looking at them, like the what makes things have some definite form is a ground of all of those forms. It isn't like just potential popping out of nowhere willy-nilly. Like there are constraints that shape the, the the things that actually emerge from the ground of being. Right. Yeah. Okay. And, and this. Yeah. This is. It's still like super abstract to think about this, but I, I think it's like rather than than trying to talk about it in those super abstract terms, you just need to kind of widen it and just keep. I, I, I think it's great that you gave a couple examples, and I think the example. Mm -hmm root is this is almost the only way to start to think this way <laughs> yeah but yeah, so i agree in christianity actually let's come back to christianity because i think you and i have a slightly mm -hmm. different way of, of of teasing that out but at least in, in in taoism it seems that there's yin is kind of i think that's yin would be the ground of being and yang would be the constraints and Tao would be the relationship between them I, again I, I i don't know i haven't read much in, in the taoist tradition but i, I think that's yeah I, I i always tend to mix up yin and yang i thought that yang was the feminine one so this would be more the I th like the, the potential I, I did a little bit of yoga last year yeah. and it, just based on my memory of that they had a session called yin and that was mm -hmm. the really girly session where it was very yeah. <laughs> relaxed and like there's no exercise it's just like stretching and relaxing and i was like this seems like the the feminine one so that was how i remembered it but maybe i'm wrong <laughs> you know what i'm just gonna google it right okay. now because it's it's fairly simple i know that's definitely my wife's favorite sessions were always the yin ones <laughs> yeah i think yin huh yin seems okay wikipedia doesn't help me right away i got <clears throat> the uh dark side is associated with everything hard negative cold wet and feminine and that was yang so or yin, yin? sorry okay. yeah yeah, yeah. So yes. yin, Let's be feminine. correct about it. It's not ying, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> Common mistake. Yeah. Okay. And so, yeah, the feminine part would be more of the ground. Like yeah, that's the, what I was thinking. The ground of being, the potential. Potentiality, yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. And then Hinduism. I hadn't heard these words before, but you said there's sat, chit, and ananda, which I looked that yeah. up later, and that's all like one word, sat, chit, ananda. Yeah. Yeah, is, it's God. Yeah. But, uh, it's David Benclert uses those those words fairly often to talk about it. Yeah. Okay. So, so you've, uh, other than what you've read in his book, but I mean, you, you read a little bit about this. Can you give a little bit more about those words? Do you, can you tease them out a tiny bit? Well, I, I haven't read in, in Hinduism exactly, but I do know that they map to the categories we've talked about. So sat or being itself uh, is... The, the, the potential, the, the, the ground of potential, I should say, like the, the emptiness out of which things can spring forth is the ground of being. Yeah. And then chit is the intelligibility of things, the, the, the overarching set of like generative constraints that will shape the emergence from being, from a set. And then ananda is the bliss between the two. Uh, right. I like that word, the, bliss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's a great word that uh, David Bentler uses. And on on the one end, like it has to be something like this, just because being and intelligibility really do meet in things. Like yeah. potential and patterns really do meet to create things. So there has to be like a, 
a purpose to it all. There has to be some sort of destination, some sort of yeah. bliss at the end of it all. And it's validated by the experiences of mystics uh, who can like reach this and experience this, this bliss. But even us in our daily experience, whenever we get to have patterns and potential meat, we get to taste this to some extent. Like anything, yeah. anything we actually want, anything we, we find pleasurable somehow, yeah. ultimately points to Ananda itself. It ultimately points to the, the bliss at the very ground of things. Yeah. Well, see, and I love the way Verveki introduces these ideas because he goes to something very, very, um, very palatable for any modern, especially young man, because rather, rather than using something abstract and like religious that maybe you haven't even grown up with a religion, he starts talking about video games right off the bat. Mm. He talks about how video games are essentially just flow creation machines because flow is again another term that that talks about that third category of like the meeting of constraint and potential which that's essentially what a well-designed video game is supposed to do and what it does do if again again if, if it's meeting your abilities exactly or it's just pushing a little bit beyond your abilities the constraints of your abilities because you're that, that would be yeah. the constraint category and the the desire for like success it's like success is just meeting your abilities or or the challenge is just meeting your abilities like there, there's potential that's sort of out of your current reach in the video game yeah. let's say uh, but you you can in there's a certain set of of a of the video game that you can constrain that in which you can impose intelligibility let's say and when you stretch your intelligibility into the realm that's just potential for you then you do experience like this bliss this flow state right. where you're sort of just navigating the between the, the the potential and the intelligibility that you can bring it onto that potential, because yeah, like I mean, the experience. Of, I mean, this all relates to like a difficulty curve because some some games they st like it's like the beginning of every game. You're just gonna start. You're just gonna be establishing, figuring out the basic rules of the universe of that game engine and figuring out okay, how can I move around here? What can I do? Mm -hmm. Some games just kind of you they 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 aren't fun because they just kind of they get they get that. Uh, they get that difficulty curve wrong. They just keep it kind of easy and they establish some, some concepts and then they, it, it kind of peters out. It's like, okay, this is the game and it's just a, hours of doing the same thing and it gets very boring because I, what feels interesting is, is constantly pushing you a little bit further, a little bit past what you've been able to do so far. Yeah. It's like, yeah. okay, you just beat this level and then the next level is going to be actually throwing something new at you. And I mean, I was just thinking about, I just recently started playing through the newest... Um, newest remake of doom and they do this really really well in that game the the difficulty curve it seems to me that it's like it's it's perfect like you just as soon as you've you've managed one concept they throw a new gun at you or a new skill set or a new tree and it's just constantly but it's not all at once it's just they give you just yeah. enough time to figure out how to use it and then they throw something new at you they're constantly pushing you into that new state of reframing your problem reframing how, how you're going to play the game and pushing you out of that so it's just this constant flow state yeah yeah, yeah. You don't want to be like in a place where all you have is the intelligibility that you have already mastered. Like, there's no new potential for you yeah. to like to inform. But at the same time, you don't want to be in a place where there's just potential and you can't make any intelligibility out of it. And yeah. like, it's not pleasurable either. You have to be in the the, the proper place meet between the two. Sorry, Evan. Can you just? I think the mouse is right in front of G JP's face. <laughs> So video games work are I, I just like I feel like that's such a relatable example, but I wanted to even do mm -hmm. a couple because you, you do a couple examples yeah. like to do with like science and physics and stuff, yeah. which are great. Again, if if you've gone deep enough into that train to, to follow those two, which I really haven't. I, I did like I finished I made it through high school science and stuff and I really enjoyed my physics 
that I learned in high school, but like didn't go much beyond that. Didn't learn a lot about like quantum theory or subatomic particles or anything like that. Just like a very brief overview. So I was like trying to follow along with that and like kind of making sense of it. But mm-hmm. I want to maybe, I mean, a, a few examples that I thought of anyways, one yeah. of them is just communication. Uh, so, I mean, you, we have this, I mean, you have an idea, you want to talk about it, but there's something that constrains that idea, being able to communicate it. You can't just kind of like, I can't just insert my brain into yours and have the exact idea appear, the experience of the idea happen in your head. The, there's a constraint there, which basically is whatever communicative abilities I have. So, I mean, language would be one, but I mean, even facial communication. But l- language is a good place to start and kind of look at because language, I mean, <laughs> we can understand how language works, right? But language is the constraint to the idea that, that allows me to communicate it anyways. So, like, if I can, if I can communicate my idea really, really well, and it's... I'm trying to think about that idea of like pushing just past my ability to communicate, but like mm-hmm. sometimes where it's like I'm, I'm, my communication skills are just mapping onto my ideas, and it's yep. like something's just flowing out really good. You can have that same experience of flow, and like especially a good conversation is when it's like both people are engaged in that, and like you're understanding exactly what I mean, or like it's 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 just lining up, and then you're saying something back, and it's even though there's this constraint on our ability to to uh, to communicate. It, it's like somehow that's even like building some momentum. I'm thinking about it like even in terms of like, you know, water passing through a, a smaller, a smaller gate, like a bottleneck. It actually like it creates more pressure and it becomes something more energetic when it when it has to go through that bottleneck to point. I don't know if that is a good analogy. Yeah, I wonder how to map it exactly, because let's see that the, the constraining doesn't I mean, it does at some point come to limiting something but it doesn't necessarily have to be with i don't think it's exactly the same as the way in which language limits what we say um because okay i i like the 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 dialogue aspect you brought into it because one thing you can say is there's okay there there, there's potential on what we could say like there's I don't know, like five, ten different things that we could put in. Like, I mean, there's billions of things we could say, really. But yeah. like, there's a few paths that we can discern, like between what we could say. Um, but from like all of that potential, we we will constrain it down to something like, that we actually say. We constrain it to just one thing, one path through all of that potential that we actually say. And this comes down to the language you were bringing uh, and. I mean, this happens all by yourself, even if you're just like one person. And as you ca- as you said, we can even get into a total. You, you can be all alone by yourself and still get into a flow state just speaking because right. you're playing with your idea, like you're stretching your, your potential into like, all of the the infinite potential of things you could potentially say. You bring it d- down to something small and intelligible that you actually do right. say. And if you, you you can do it in a way that is meaningful, that actually has like. It's like your intelligibility is actually growing as you're engaging it with that yeah. ground of, of language or ground of ideas. Yeah, yeah. And then when you're two people doing that, you can sort of get into a, a deeper... But it, it can't give you more potential when you're two people engaging in this sort of discussion because, like, I mean, you you have sort of two nodes which can like play with all of this potential. Yeah. And like the person saying something can make you think of something else. And right. like you get all kinds of new paths. You get all kinds of new potential. 
And you can then constrain that down to new things that neither of you could have thought about earlier. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's how I think I would map the, the constraining idea. Like, of, out of all the things you could say, you constrain it down to, to something. That It seems like um, even just that word intelligibility fundamentally, I don't know, it seems to me that it has to do with communication. Like, and I don't know if, if this yeah. is going to bring us down into the rabbit hole of perception and what's really real, but mm -hmm. at least as far as like talking to somebody or even just any understanding of things is communicative because even if it's not talking to somebody else, there's different parts of your brain communicating with each other in order to have an intelligible un idea of reality or into an intelligible thought, right? Your left and right hemispheres are constraining each other's uh, input and perception. Um, which is another one of the examples I wanted to look at is like McGilchrist's example of like the left and right brain and then a mm -hmm. cohesive thought, you know, happening yeah. between them when, when they're properly engaging with each other. Although, I mean, he even go goes right out and says that, that it's not just one, it, they don't neatly map onto it. It's not like the one side of the brain is responsible just for constraint and the other side is responsible just for con potential, even though they kind of loosely map onto that. They're both actually mm -hmm. constraining each other as well in the same sense yeah. that... When you're having a yeah. conversation with somebody, there's obviously one person who's smarter. In this case, it's you, and you, you <laughs> and you and you have a constraint between the two people who are engaging in the dialogue, and one is kind of more. I mean, probably in this case, I have more scattered ideas that I'm just throwing out and hoping that you can kind of mesh them in and constrain them a little bit more. But but it's happening mm -hmm. both ways as well because we're both yeah. having a conversation with each other. Yeah. Um. Okay, maybe maybe we can jump. I mean, just a, I can I'd run through a few of these more, but then I want to go to the Christianity one because Peterson has mm -hmm. his chaos and order, and then existence yeah. is a, is a meeting of the two. Chaos is kind of like ground of being, and order is yeah. kind of what constrains. Yeah. Freud, I think I think it might map kind of like the id and the super ego, and then the ego, maybe. Huh. I, I don't know, know enough one. about Freud. I have uh, no idea. I I only know tangentially about Freud through okay. Peterson. Uh, I couldn't know, like, how, what does he mean by those categories exactly? So, I'm going to have to be pretty loose to you. I've read a little bit of Freud, but I mean, there's so much you can, and I mean, it's difficult sometimes to follow, but I think the id is kind of like, again, kind of this more uh, sheer, almost instinctual, or just like uh, the drive, the urges of your of your self. Okay, yeah. And then I think the superego, I think it might have to do slightly with culture, or just kind of the constraints on how you're going to behave. And your mm -hmm. ego is kind of what feels like most like you yourself, or and and I think um, in Jung's um, in his his terminology for these three categories, it would be he would actually use the word the self. I think um, so. So I think for Freud, it would be id, super ego, and self would be kind of the mediator, and then mm -hmm. for Jung, it would be unconscious and conscious awareness and self. Maybe again, it, maybe there's not mm -hmm. a perfect mapping, but I'm just kind of loosely seeing if I can plug those things in. Yeah. And then, oh, actually, recently I was just reading Matthew Peugeot's book, and he talks about, and yeah. this is a great one, too. He talks about wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. Yeah. Where wisdom would be these kinds of very, very vague, um, again, I, I think that's kind of the, the being. It's like, it's the, the, the most abstract form of an idea. But then he talks about even the symbolic, it's like, okay, so you have an idea, but you don't really, I mean, somebody, somebody explains a, a concept to you. It's like they, they kind of somewhat outline the concept, but you don't actually begin to get it until you get some examples. And then 
when when they give you that example, is you get understanding, and he uses this imagery of like that, those are the beams supporting the idea. So there's the mm-hmm. idea at the top, or the wisdom, and then there's the understanding which holds it up. Which literally, it's standing under the idea. It's understanding it, mm-hmm. and then when you when you have the wisdom and you have the understanding, then you have knowledge of the idea. Huh. That's nice. Yeah, I didn't remember exactly that mapping. But yeah, in Matthew, you find lots and lots of uh, examples of this, yeah. where there's like the there's the there's the body, there's the head, and then there's like the person that unites all of, like mm-hmm. those two. There's a in a group. Let's say you can have the king, you can have the people, and like you have a kingdom that meets all, all of those. Right. You have all like how potential and patterns can meet in general like he talks about the earth and the seed like he, he gives tons and tons of examples of this in the book i don't think he uses the exact terminology of i don't know if he uses like potential and logos ever explicitly but it's always like still the the idea of like you have some some ground of possibility and then you have some intelligibility that comes down and informs that potentiality yeah yeah okay so i mean obviously the natural progression for Pierre is to start thinking about oh all these there's there's three categories and they interact in this way that there's there's three categories in christianity we have three categories for god we have father son and holy spirit but your intuition went a totally different direction here for how to map that onto them so maybe you could first kind of give your outline and then i'll i'll, I'll tell you mm-hmm. mine and see if we could find a, a midway point here maybe we could find a bliss in between our perspectives <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah so i mean i went the way that uh David Bentley takes it, okay. uh, which seems to be similar to the way that at least some of the church fathers were taking it, especially in, in, in the East. Uh, you have the idea that the, the father is the ground of being that is sort of always hidden, always furthest from us, uh, but gives rise to everything. And then it's through the logos, through intelligibility, through the, the shaping that you'll see the the father manifest it's because there are patterns that will happen on potential that we will see things like actually be created like things will all together you won't just see raw potential because that that would be nothing but so so it's through the the son that you get to see the father and then in this relationship between the ground of being and the ground of intelligibility between the father and the son you have the spirit you have the bliss uh which is like the ultimate purpose you can say of the, of everything like the father does everything towards the son in the spirit and bliss and vice versa uh, and we strive to participate in that so that that's the way that uh, david benzler uh, laid it out but you you had a different intuition yeah well i mean just partially it, i i think i have i can even argue this pretty well um mm-hmm. i so i i think about the father not as being the ground of being because the father uh, at least from what I've kind of starting to learn about mythology and learning about, um, especially like Peterson's unpacking of a lot of different myths and stuff like that, father mm-hmm. oftentimes has to do with like society and government and and mm-hmm. rule. So it's it would seem that I, I would relate the father more to the intelligibility c- category. It's like that's the constraining factors on on being. Right? It's like the law, or, or it's like especially you think about the God of the Old Testament is the is the father. He's he's the God who gives mm-hmm. the commandments and stuff like that. Um, and then you have the the spirit, which uh, I mean, in in the the Genesis account, the, the the spirit is like hovering over the. It's like the spirit is associated with the chaos that is that is 
the world is the universe is going to be created out of the spirit mm-hmm. hovers over the waters which i mean i guess you could read that as okay there's the spirit and then there's the there's the waters which are below but i'm i'm kind of seeing it's like there's there's the father in heaven and then there's the spirit down below with the water mm-hmm. and those seem to be especially in the the symbolic understanding of water just being chaos or being non-beingness being nothingness right which, yeah. as, as far as I know, I think that's in, in Hebrew, or at least in like the, the ancient cosmology, water literally just, it doesn't mean H2O, it just means nothing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, there's an important twist in that you don't want to say that the Father is the potential itself. You want to say that even, like, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So even the earth, like even the water, like the potential mm-hmm. was created. Sometimes I'll say, because of that, that the Father is the ground of potential. I think I read that in a few places, yes. where... I don't want to say that the father just is potential. Uh, I even triggered Jonathan at some point by, <laughs> by in, in a conversation, mentioned, like speaking of the father as being like sort of below, as being the potential yeah. that is then informed by the son. And like this, of course, would get things backwards. Like you want the father to be on top, <laughs> right? But uh, like the the idea is more that the father is the like the ground of everything, the of the potential and of the intelligibility. Like you wouldn't even it wouldn't even make sense to have the son without the father to have intelligibility without something that gives potentiality to be informed by by patterns so like you you have to imagine the father the way that uh like lots lots of it of christian mystics especially will talk about him like the or even the way that christ talks about him in the gospels where the father is not visible to anybody except through the son like the, right. he has, like nobody can see his face and live. Nobody has seen the father. Even like really, we would say that the the theophanies, the apparitions of the, the appearances of God that you see in the Old Testament are Christ ultimately. Like people don't see the father himself. The right. father is always hidden. He's the ground of like of of, of potential. He's the ground of, of everything. You don't interact directly with him. You enter what what you get to see is always uh, shaped through the logos. Right. I don't know if that helps, but yeah, it's not an, an easy topic. I, well, I, so, so yeah, you said that it's getting shaped through the logos, which I, I yeah. logos th- that word makes a little bit more sense to be. I, but again, it's like it depending on what perspective you're looking at it. Logos could be that meeting of the the idea and the the constraints on language. It's like okay, so you have language, and then you have an idea, and they meet in a word, and the word is what is is their meeting it's the, it's that mediator between those the constraint and the and the potentiality and i mean the, the one other thing i wanted to point out is so I, uh even in let's see in in ecclesiastes there's the the kohelet he talks about um you know everything is nothingness everything is vain everything is um is habal or habel which is like nothingness everything it, but or the word is vapor or spirit so again it seems like there's an association between spirit and nothingness which it's not the same word as in as in the Genesis account, which is ruach, but it seems that there's still a relationship there. So I'm not, I'm not sure. I obviously I don't don't know Hebrew, just know how to use blue letter Bible. <laughs> but and and then Christ says that he is the way, which again the way that sounds to me a lot like the Taoist thing of like the way is Tao. It's like it's the way in between uh, potentiality and intelligibility, or uh, or chaos and order, or yin and yang. Right? It, it seems that Christ is. And again, I, I kind of think about it as a sort of family relationship, like, and I know that there might be something heretical to saying that the spirit is like feminine or like the mother, but it's like there's the father and there's a mother which create a child, which I would see as Christ. But, and I, I, I don't know, that, that's where my mind's going and I'm still waiting for somebody to, to give me a, a good critique of that, but that's, that's how I understand the Trinity as far as mapping onto this, 
this set of yeah. terms. But well, I mean, things get difficult too because there is like we do have the idea that they ultimately share everything. Uh, so like you'll find so, so that you'll be able to find symmetries in all of this stuff. Um, I think this could be what we're getting into here in some places at least. Trying to see like what else I've seen about the Trinity that could help here. Um, okay, so be, there's the old filioque thing. Like the like how is it that the the different persons of the Trinity can coexist and like what what and now it gets into all kinds of interesting language, but basically you, you want to say that all three are uh, not made, mm -hmm. but you can speak of begottenness. So like the father is unbegotten, meaning that he's like necessary, eternal, and all of those things. Yeah. And then he begets the son. So you can say that it's because there's a ground of being that you can then have a ground of intelligibility, that you can have some, some, some constraints on potential. Uh, and then it's because you have those two that you can have the third person, which is a meeting of like potential and uh, patterns. So you get this step of like you have the father, then you have the son, then you have the spirit, and like all three sort of rest on the father. And like it's by this sort of priority of persons that uh, the yeah that the tradition has talked about them. But now there's something else interesting going on. With and I think it gets to what you said earlier about like that you can seem to propose different mappings and I know that especially like when they're in in all of the controversies in the first few centuries where people were trying to yeah. like specify whether or not Christ is divine and then later the issue the same issue popped up with the Holy Spirit and the way that the church fathers solved this puzzle was to look at the different uh, attributes of the different persons of the Trinity throughout the Bible. And they saw that like they all add the same attributes. But, <laughs> yeah. So, so that you can see all of three, all three doing the same things like right. in, in different places, but there will be an emphasis. And like, even you can even get a feel for that. If you like practice Christianity, because you'll, you'll tend to invoke the father or the son or the spirit for different things. Like right. if, uh, let's say you, uh, you, you want you, you prefer like healing or something if if you pray to uh like be in communion with your your like your your, your spouse or somebody else then it'll, it'll typically be more of the the spirit like the, the, like some some unity right, across okay. people something more invisible uh if you're like praying for um like s some some miracle almost to happen like some 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 something to spring forth then you'll more invoke the 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 father uh, right, okay. If you, and then you would invoke, then the sun, I think, more for well, like time, like liturgy. Or, I feel like I mean, or like, I feel like you're more praying to. Well, I don't know. I mean, you're f at least focusing on the sun more in the liturgy of like the church and stuff. It's like oh, we're coming in, we're remembering Christ as we like eat the the bread and the drink the wine and like have atonement like coming together and stuff like that I, I feel like that's maybe more focused on the sun but i mean again i think I, I think you probably still pray to the father in those moments. yeah yeah i mean we, we even say like all three all yeah. the time like we say in the name of the father and the son and the holy yeah, spirit exactly. will say like in different parts of the mass will say that uh, uh let's see we're worshiping the father in christ uh -oh. in even the communion of the old spirit the sign you just did 
that yep. that probably more lines up with the way that you're talking about it too is because you see the father is up here the son is down here <laughs> yeah and then there's yep. the spirit kind of in mediating so maybe i'm wrong i don't know it just that makes a lot of sense to me <laughs> yeah i mean if you come back on on genesis um in the beginning the it's interesting if you look at the words are different like in the first step it's in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth uh so you have like the primordial division that comes from god and then you have something different that pops up then it's after this first step of god like the the furthest uh like at the very origin of things not only temporally but ontologically it's after this that you see the father and the son pop up because it's afterward that you'll see that thing can be spoken into being um you'll see let there be let the blah 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 so it, it, it's it, and then god said yeah. so you have you have the word you have the like the the constraints you have the intelligibility and like the the word this word is associated with quite explicitly in john's gospel uh, at the very beginning of it like in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god um so like there's this there's this word that it is that through which the father creates you can say and that's explicit i mean it's after god creates the event in the earth then yeah. it's the speech then is the word right. that will shape things and then the the spirit is sort of what hovers over the face of the waters it's sort of the the mediating uh yeah yeah I, I come back to that word you used earlier like the the mediating thing but it's it's always harder to see the spirit and all of those things but i think it's because of this sort of mapping uh that and, and I know that there are others, yeah. other reasons for this that I'm not super familiar with. Apparently, even um, in around the time of Christ, and for a few centuries before that, there was like entire schools of Judaism that were already speaking of a Trinity because of like what you can see in the Old Testament, where you, you add like already three hypostases, I mean, yeah, three you, you persons see them in, in Genesis, God. right? Like, yeah, yeah, we're just talking about. Yeah. And then you can trace it still in other like places of the, of the Bible. Sometimes you did mention the Spirit of God. Some, sometimes you have weird passages that I don't exactly remember, but you'll see like uh, there's like Yahweh who is manifesting himself like to to somebody, and then he invokes Yahweh up in the sky. So like you have two Yahwehs. <laughs> like, you, you have this kind of stuff yeah. happening, and like it'll be like the logos invoking the Father. So the even before Christianity, you already had this idea of like different you can say layers of the same divinity and you yeah. you could see that in greek thought too like in i mean it became more clear in neoplatonism which was after christ anyways but even maybe in, in plato and aristotle like there were there were is there ideas bubbling up in greek thought is there a way to map this similar. onto there i mean i haven't read any of those yeah, guys yeah. i've just heard kind of indirect stuff C could you can you bring it over into that realm a little bit yeah yeah i mean the, there will be more differences between Neoplatonism and Christianity than there will be between Christianity and the traditions that I mentioned earlier. Right. But still, you can kind of try to stretch it. So in Neoplatonism especially, uh, it's where this comes clearest. The most fundamental divinity is the one. So it's the oneness of things. And you can still say that it's the ground of of, uh, of being. Uh, sure. But it's it's what allow it's the very possibility for things to exist at all as as one so like the the kinds of arguments that Plotinus will use to talk about this is the idea that like how do you know that things are one at all like for things to exist there must be alls that are not just simple separate parts like there must be something some overarching things that grabs 
things and pulls them together. And we have this drive, even like you, you'll see that, let's say, in a we, we ask the reasons for things like we we if we have two explanations for some for something like we have the idea that there must be really like one more fundamental reason behind all those things like we want to unify theory of physics for instance because yeah. we know that there must be like one overarching like ground of or, all of those things that we see it, it seems impossible to know that though it's just like it, it just seems so right it's like such an intuitive like well if we see it here we just always kind of the inductive pattern is to kind of think, okay, well, how far up does that go? Probably, especially, I mean, when we're seeing this as such an ancient way of dividing up the world, an ancient way of dividing up cosmology and, and viewing the world, yeah. that it's okay. It's like everybody has this intuition, so it must be right. But is that, like, how do you test it? Is You just kind of, you appeal to ma the majority, you appeal to all these traditions. I, I mean, that's, that's my well, strategy anyways. Yeah, yeah, I mean, kind of. It's a, uh, you can go through the arguments to the best of your ability, but at some point you'll see that, I mean, it, it becomes impossible to, like, say exactly who's wrong and who's right at some point. Like, you can agree on a lot of stuff still, but at some point you have to, like, try it and, like, see the fruits. Like, you, you can read about people who tried this way or that way and see where they ended up. And you can try and pick what you think will work best for you, but, like, you do have to ultimately try it. I think it's just shocking. I think it, it reminds me a bit of the last conversation we had, Garrett, where, like, in some in some of those... It's that if, like, the stuff that Plotinus was talking about, uh, with regards to the one, for instance, if you, it's almost... Wait, wait, Plotinus? That, Plotinus. That, there's Plato oh. and there's Plotinus? Are these two? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Plotinus <laughs> is, the, is about Neoplatonism. Okay. Uh, it's the idea about, of the one I mentioned earlier, okay. that's, from, uh, that, that's Plotinus. Okay. But, I mean, this, it, it's more than an argument, really. I think what Plotinus does is he shows us that if you don't agree with the idea of the one, then you're sort of cutting yourself at the knees because we work this way. Like our cognition works this way. It's it does seek the one. Mm -hmm. Sort of all of all of what we we use to make sense of the world rests on the idea of the one, even though we're not aware of it. So if we don't agree that there is really this one out there, and it's not just in our imagination, then. I mean, we're, we're in big trouble. Like, if we don't agree that, like, this points to something real, then we're just, like, we're bereft. Like, what, what can we do? Like, if something that is so fundamental to our cognition doesn't match to something real, then we might as well just stop. Like, there's no even, like, yeah. what are you going to do? This is the only so, place conversation can begin about this. So if this isn't yeah. good enough, then sorry, we can't have a... Con well, I mean, so you go to nothingness. You, you just, like, okay, if this isn't good enough, then, then nothing's good enough, right? And then you just kind of you threw off the shackles of conversation at all and just stop trying to solve the problem. Is that, I mean, I, I'm not sure if I'm kind of skipping a, a, mm -hmm. ahead a little bit here, but I mean, you get into this, um, this discussion about nothingness and, and overcome yeah. nothing. I mean, it, it, even the title is, is, is like evil and enlightenment and Easter, which is about yeah. like death and, and resurrection. Like, so yeah. which you associate death and nothingness, right? Yes. Yes. To, to an extent, like, it's not all there is, but yes, there's definitely an association there of, like, going down into death is one kind of falling into nothingness. And, like, right. it's especially the, the negative sides of nothingness. There's, like, Nishitani does something interesting, like, of how you can flip nothingness. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, definitely there's an association between nothingness and death. Yeah. Is that something unique to Nishitani's take, or is that... Or do you know if that's like pretty standard? Because I mean, I, I tried to read last year, or yeah. maybe it was the year before. I tried to listen. I tried to, or I listened to an audiobook of um, it was something by the uh, what's his name, the Dalai Lama, 
it was called for the good of all beings because i was just like okay i had just kind of had this general idea okay probably if there's if other religious traditions have something to offer i i want to try and give them a chance and start trying to pay yep. attention to some of these other guys and i didn't know where to start other than the dalai lama <laughs> so yeah i read this book and i just i found myself getting so frustrated by it because it seemed like such a lopsided cosmology it just seemed like it's just <laughs> all about nothingness and all about how nothing actually exists and there's <laughs> and it's like i i was like okay i can see the value of that attached to a greater story about like finding true being and doing that through nothingness but like i didn't see it any of that in the i mean i had a hard time finding it anyways because there's such a focus yeah. on like on the impermanence of everything and the nothingness of everything and i didn't see anything redemptive about that it just seemed like a fundamentally nihilistic and depressing <laughs> way of talking about reality yeah I, th I think it's like really an attempt to on the one end shock us and like make us realize like how much of ourselves is just he's just trolling like, <laughs> yeah i don't want to say illusory because at some point they do say that all of those layers are being untrue, but like they, they want to shock us away from like thinking that we're sort of crystallized and we exist like at the levels at which we think of ourselves. Like yeah. they, they want us to realize that, okay, we're not just our thoughts, like our thoughts rest on something is more fundamental. We're not even like just, uh, we, you can just keep going down the ontological chain and you don't find anything solid. And like even it's, it's really great now because with like, what we know from the last century of physics, like at the bottom of it all, there's just potential. Like there's there's nothing. <laughs> so like it, you really just, like, you can go through all of those layers and like the Buddhists keep saying, that's nothing, that's nothing, that's nothing. Like you just keep going down and at some point you reach like really nothingness where there's just potential. Right. And Which I, I feel like we might even figure out ways to, I mean, we, we might get lower than we currently have. We might figure out new observational, uh, more particularities of way like to get, lower than we've already gotten with our understanding of the physical laws of the universe i don't know I, I i don't know that much about physics but even if we do that it's like there's still going to be a level below that always that it's like well you just can't get to the bottom there's yeah, but, there's mean, a nothingness below that yeah yeah i mean and like actually even the nothingness is already there like i mean we know about all kinds of layers of particles like we know about let's say atoms we know about protons neutrons we know about quarks and electrons like we we know about like a certain layer of objects you can say uh but we know that beside, below that, there is like just potential. Maybe we'll find particles below those as well, okay. but it won't change to the fact that we really know <laughs> that there's hit, just We've potential. already hit bedrock, but we might find yeah. some other layers in between yeah. there where we already Yeah, hit. yeah. But we I mean, and it's not bedrock, like it's just potential. Like you can right. do math. It's not even like, a bedrock. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you can do math and like have probabilities of what will spring for, from that potential, but it's definitely like just potential there. Like there, there are people who try to interpret things some other ways, but I think if you look at the philosophy of physics, what the, all of the interpretations that seem most elegant are the ones that go back to Aristotle, that say that, okay, well, the reasons why things behave this way is because at the, at the ground, there's just potential. Like, we get probabilities because it's real probabilities. Like, it's really potential. So, uh, yeah, this is where it gets a little bit hard to follow, so that there's real yeah. constraints on, and I, maybe it's, again, just because we're kind of too far into physics and I, and I have... I, yeah. I, I haven't learned enough about that stuff, but there's real constraints. If there's real constraints, then how is there totally unrestrained nothingness below those constraints? Or am I still yeah, misunderstanding that relationship? I mean, that's a great question because I mean, like whether you go east or west, there's there's a really old idea. Uh, I don't know, like how far back it goes historically in the east, but in the west it goes back to Parmenides. Uh, that's like I don't know. 
3,000 years ago, maybe. It's a really long time ago. And like, because he, he hit on the idea that being and intelligibility are interchangeable like they're ultimately point to the same thing and like if you if you're trying to if you're trying to speak about the potential at the bottom of things it's nothing because there's no there's no shape at all as you said so i mean you'll you'll see that like you'll see that in aquinas you'll see that in like the christian fathers you'll see that in 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 the east like there's a like this potential doesn't exist in in like as thingness like it's yeah. it's you can really say that it's 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 a kind of no thing yeah i i'm smiling because this is reminding me of um there's a youtuber uh called dreg or greg and he talks a lot about all different political political ideologies and just kind of rips on everything but he he was the first person to introduce me to political horseshoe theory i'm not sure if you've yeah. heard of that yeah 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 okay but i mean it's like it's i see that same pattern of okay there from the perspective of a functional society you have different directions you can go you can go more liberal or more conservative but if you go down to the bottom of either one of those you get to nothingness there's no society anymore it's yeah. utterly uncohesive there's nothing there like it's it's totally fallen apart and there's and they're basically both are just chaotic nothingness where there's no shape and there's no potentiality there's no freedom and there's no law there's just not it's not a society it's not cohesive it's not a thing anymore yeah right which is it's interesting i mean you can even look at various countries who have who have struggled with with falling down one of those ends of that horseshoe and just see it's it's interesting because if you ask uh, you know somebody who's very committed to a leftist ideology you know about these different stories in history like hitler and stalin they'll point to them and say they're all actually just evil conservatives and if you ask ask a conservative about them they'll tell you oh those are actually all evil co evil communists basically they're they're all just socialists and just socialism got wrong it's because they are they're they're all both of those things they're or neither really because they've got so far past either one of those things even being a thing that they've descended yeah. into the nothingness of of not being a government at all anymore <laughs> yeah but um okay so let me see if i can make my way back from there but <laughs> so at, at least we can see though that it, it works on a political level too and that, that was yeah. one of the first things that yeah, I haven't really thought about that much about the political level yet. I tend to keep things pretty abstract, but yeah, I, I need to work on finding concrete examples. And politics may be a good way to go. Uh, it, it makes a lot of sense to me because even within the terms there, like you have conservatism, which has to do with keeping things the way things they are, restraining things, and liberalism, which is literally to do with freedom and getting out past the restraints, right? So it's it's right in the terminology. So I feel like it's a pretty easy step to make yeah well there's definitely the chaos and order thing that we we talked about earlier but yeah i i, I want to be careful about let's say um, trying to associate the father with chaos because i could run into this sort of issue that you raised <laughs> earlier about like seeing the father as just sort of the potential below and that would be weird because you do want to say the father comes first yeah so although it may just like I, i'm running into that same problem myself but I'm, it, it's i think it's just enriching my understanding of yeah. those terms like chaos or femininity and, th and these yeah. things and just making me kind of consider them more deeply yeah. it's like they they seem frustrating because i have so much baggage associated with those terms sometimes but then when i put them into this metric sometimes it informs them and gives me a kind of a, a deeper yeah. Yeah. you know so i'm not, not exactly sure because sometimes you're still going to run into a lot of situations where you start using those words and people are going to become very yeah. confused yeah but i think i think it's that that's all perfectly normal like the th there's no like one final doctrine about the trinity really like yeah. in the church there are all kinds of different ways of speaking about it because we, we talk about it as something that is super intelligible 
like that we we won't exhaust it like right. there are things that are unintelligible because they're just false or they don't make sense right. there are things that are intelligible that we can make complete sense of them but then there are things that are super intelligible right. that we will never fully grasp because they just escape us so like they we if we try and wrestle with them it will keep generating insights like you'll get better grasp of yeah. those concepts and things around you but like you won't have a final grasp on the trinity for instance is that Okay, I, I, you mentioned Gödel's incompleteness theorem in, the, in our last mm -hmm. conversation, so I looked into that a little bit, and again, yeah. I'm not a mathematician. I can barely even remember how to do algebra very well, but I, I was, watched some videos about what, what those theorems mm -hmm. were actually kind of explaining about systems, and that made a bit of sense to me. I think, anyways, mm -hmm. it's, so it, the, the, the two uh, statements, basically, that his theorems prove is that you can't, you can't have a system that reflects reality that's, or if you have a system that's representing reality, it can either be complete and inconsistent, or consistent and incomplete. Is that right? That yeah, it, yeah, I yeah, I think, yeah, I think that's true. There's no, like, or maybe there's something slightly wrong. I'm not sure, but definitely, if you have a system that talks about everything, uh, like it's it's wrong or it's no. I mean, if it's complete, it has to be inconsistent. Like, if you have a formal system that is complete, it has to be inconsistent. Yeah. If, and and you system that you have that is com that is consistent will have to be incomplete right yeah. which it, so mathematics is sort of a trying to be a consistent system and it wants to be complete too but there, there is this relationship that i feel like that you just said where it's like this is there's a super intelligibility to reality yeah. where when you try to describe it mathematically you can continue in that relationship forever and so there's like an infinite depth yeah. of math that you can continue to go down that rabbit hole and it continues to be rewarding and interesting because you're continuing to a, it's an inexhaustible uh, conversation in the same way that the conversation yeah. about the Trinity is inexhaustible. Yeah, 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 you're right. I hadn't thought about it, but yeah, that's true. Typically, I use the, the example from below, from physics, that yeah. like no matter how many particles we find, we'll always have potential below, as Aristotle said. Right. But like what you just said with uh, Gödel, like sort of does the same thing from above. Like no matter what system of intelligibility you find, there's always higher intelligibility like yeah. above it. Like you, and we we can prove it <laughs> mathematically yeah. that there's always intelligibility that escapes your current structures of intelligibility. Yeah, oh, and, and it's like. It's, I, I don't understand how you can prove that mathematically, but that's, it's so interesting that he managed to do yeah. that. It's like, okay, well, at least I could take that. This is a smart guy anyways, and yeah. he, he says that, so this, the, I could base some arguments on it anyways. Yeah, yeah I, mean, I don't remember the details, but like, it, it, it's rested on, the, uh, on creating a paradoxal, paradoxical sentence. Uh, it, okay. it, it, in the same kind of way that if I say that uh, this sentence is false, I'm seeing something that breaks, like intelligibility, that doesn't make sense. If my sentence is false, then it'll have to be true. But if it's true, then it'll, it'll right. have to be false. So the what Gödel did is he created something like that mm -hmm. using a formal where I think like he, he wrote, he basically came down to, it came down to trying to show that a certain proposition and what the proposition meant was uh, this proposition is undemonstrable something like this and like he show he ended up showing Un that if you can show you that you can't demonstrate it undemonstrable yeah, yeah. okay yeah like this 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 proposition is undemonstrable and like this sentence would be codified logically like into like a string of symbols yeah. but he what he showed was that this sentence that you've just constructed is not uh, is actually paradoxical like it, it will break your system in the same way that if i say the sentence is false right. i break like the, the, the rules right. of logic uh, like he did the same thing but within mathematics so like he showed that this formal system 
it shows that all formal systems can be both uh, like complete and consistent. So, and it's a, like the, the details, like working through the details can take like several weeks or months, depending on your mathematical expertise. But like the basic idea is about creating a paradoxical sentence. Yeah, which is as soon as you create a paradox, that's that's the easiest way to start a really really long conversation that doesn't have an ending, but oftentimes leads to a lot of really rich. Uh, <laughs> rabbit holes like i remember when i was in bible college we, i spent like 10 15 plus hours with my one good friend andrew talking about whether or not god could create a rock too big for him to lift i i feel like that problem has been kind of thrown around as a joke in christian circles and it's like it's so easy to just brush it off but as soon as you try to engage with it it just pulls you into this rabbit hole of like talking about so much interesting stuff yeah, yeah. but I, yeah and I was even recently listening to um, uh, Ian McGilchrist. I think he was, it was a lecture. Maybe it was in the book. But I think he was giving a lecture talking about what... No, this is in the book. He's talking about what a paradox even is, as far as cognitively anyways. And mm -hmm. he b explains it as basically your intuitive uh, sense-making and your deductive sense-making coming to different conclusions that are both accurate given their perspective of the problem. Mm. It's like... Uh, yeah, that's a good way of speaking about it. Where it's like they're actually neither one of them is wrong. They've both re they've they followed the rules of the way that their perspective works. Like your your right brain reaches an intuitive. This is my right brain. I'm looking at stuff here. <laughs> your right brain re reaches an intuitive conclusion based on like a holistic understanding of the situation. Your left brain reaches a more or less logical conclusion based on a, a more focused perspective of the problem, and they've followed their rules correctly. Neither one of them has made a mistake. And they've reached the correct conclusion given their premises, given their the kind of attention they're paying to the problem, and their opposite answers. And so that just—it's interesting. I, I'm thinking about this. I, I've been—I teach songwriting a little bit, and because and, mm -hmm. I write a lot of songs. Um, and one of the things I've been talking about with my students is like, when you're struggling through a problem, you're trying to figure out an interesting way of representing it. You look for paradoxes, because that—that's the way you can get people to engage with your concept on a deeper level. And catch them off guard because yeah. paradoxes are frustrating but they but they pull you into the conversation they pull you into a concept and so like even uh like i i, like I feel like a common lyric like i hate how much i love you mm -hmm. it's like it's when you hear that it's like immediately you have two two understandings of what that lyric can mean and it yeah. pulls you into thinking about you you get stuck in the inside of the mind of the lyricist a little bit more because if you engage the full brain yeah yeah, 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 that makes sense. And it's, it fits with like some of the traditions we mentioned earlier, because in Zen Buddhism, like it's all that, like all you have are Zen cones that like challenge your structure of intelligibility by throwing you into some sort of paradox, and then you have to work through it. And it's in the working of it that you like reap fruits. And then in Christianity, of course, you have Christ who like keeps saying parables that confuse people. And then his own life is a parable that confuses everyone. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so you have great. this. Yeah, that's the way to, like, yeah, to like sort of try and shock you into new perspectives. Right. Which that that shock thing is okay. I, I think I'm understanding a little bit more. It just it took a while to 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 start to process that what the Dalai Lama is telling me about nothingness and like yeah. engaging with that because it's he. I guess they like you said they really want to pull you into that journey and sh and and shock you. It's not just about a very intelligible answer. It's about bringing you through this experience of having to encounter nothingness so that yeah. way you can get through it. Can you, can you go over a little bit of um, 
what you did in your essay talking about this, or you've been talking about kind of Nishitani, the way he mm-hmm. talks about nothingness and how it like flips it on its head? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what Nishitani does is, I think it's a standard move in, in Buddhism where you do like shock the reader into realizing like the nothingness of their self, of their emotions, of like their society like you you basically get to see all of your typical levels of ontology are illusory and you keep like going down and down and down and it's not just let's say i mean just by the way that i tend to think it's i talk about it in terms of ontological levels but you can also use other like much more common experiences like the experience of death the experience of terror that we have for like something that may come up like all those experiences that shock you away from your normal being and throw you into some sort of nothingness some sort of absence of what you're typically in like all of those things are sort of making you move towards non-being right but is that the very you use the word terror that that kind of reminds me of thinking about the the fear of the lord or like the terror of the lord is the beginning of wisdom it's like when you're shocked out of or when you're totally terrified because your your understanding of reality has fallen apart like that's when you can begin to encounter wisdom yeah yeah it's all like the like the, the the terror that you have before something that is like wholly other than you and nonetheless exists but yeah so you I'd basically picture it as like going down all of those layers into nothingness, into nihility. That's the term that uh, Nishitani will use all the time. But what he what he then explains is that you can, like, you you don't have to get stuck there. Nishitani goes through different figures in the Western philosophical tradition, uh, and like point out many of them were able to sort of go down the layers and challenge, let's say the the supposed reality of things according to our society let's say you can point to nietzsche or sartre like all of those people who like showed how our common conceptions rest on illusions but like you don't you shouldn't stay at the level of nihility where you just challenge everything because ultimately you can turn that on instead like even the fact right. that you're stuck at this level well that's is also it's due to you not fully embracing the concept yeah, it's 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 also like you, you can doubt nihility itself. Like you you can doubt that this very level of being is true as well. And what happens? And for Nishitani, this is a like it isn't just a let's say intellectual exercise. Like this is religion for him. Like it's a religious experience to realize and seriously grapple with like the nothingness of the different layers of be- of your being. But ultimately, you can reach a point where you see how well this nothingness is actually giving rise to all of the other layers like it's you it's as if initially you just sort of chip away chip away chip away and you get to the the very ground things but then you realize that this ground like can fall free to the same kinds of doubts that you have and by by flipping this at this point you make all of the other layers real again right. and you see that actually like it's because there's potential it's because there's this nothingness that all of the other layers are real like yeah. the things don't just exist sort of by themselves out of nowhere they have to rest on something that is necessary something that is like sort of self-sufficient in nothingness that gives things their oomph like their their their, their, their fire things that like brings them into being mm-hmm. so 
like after you have gone through all of those layers and you see yourself as made from this nothingness and everything around you made from this nothingness as well then you re-emerge back and like nishitani will talk about this as a sunyata as a, right. a perspective that you now have where you unite all of those layers and you see yourself as profoundly anchored in non-being and you then it'll also flesh out into seeing others around you this way and even plants and like uh, inanimate objects as all sort of in a communion from non-being so it's it's, it's a doubt of doubting almost <laughs> yeah yeah I, it's reminding in our last time we talked you you challenged me on you asked like uh i said i'm not certain of anything and you said are you certain of that <laughs> which yeah. i've i've had people throw that at me before and it but just thinking about that again recently i i think where we got mixed up there is that uh mm-hmm. thinking about certainty as sort of a, a yes or no or like a mm-hmm. boolean variable like something that's either true or false and i think that's where you, you run into a problem because certainty is not it's not that you either have certainty or you don't you always have varying degrees of certainty yes i mean that's true but sometimes sometimes it can you can be absolutely certain of some certain certain things like so sometimes the probability has to be one or zero otherwise you won't even get off the ground like even like what you what you just said that everything has a probability let's say between one and zero like you have to say that this is a probability one of being true because otherwise like right or else, uh, it, it, but again when you commit to that system of it has to be yes or no then you follow you fo- you follow down this trail of nothingness too though you you, fo- you follow that system to its very end this like a, a closed logical system and you see that, that that system falls apart eventually as well i feel like uh, would you, I'm, I'm not sure i quite followed like if you take what, what's the hypothesis you take if everything is zero or one yeah, if if you have a simple system again, you're trying to represent reality with it. This is an extremely yeah. simple mathematical system where everything is either true or false. Mm-hmm. Then eventually, according to the, according to the incompletest theorems, right, is if you eventually get to the end of that and your system can't comprehend reality and you find a place where it breaks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think you, you do have to at some point reach the idea that for at least, like most of your beliefs will be provisional like it will be probability between zero or one but I, I do think that to get off the ground you do need to say that some things are probability one of being true uh otherwise you just always undermine yourself and you can keep doubting but like it's better to like go with okay platanus i grant you your point and then you move forward <laughs> well i mean with this you know this relationship with sonyata or this relationship with absolute nothing which is did that concept kind of landing for you have that makes sense after given the the context we've kind of given like find getting to the bottom of nihilism and where like you're doubting whether or not anything exists and then you get all the way to the bottom and doubt whether or not your statement about everything even existing is meaningful <laughs> yeah i've heard that one before, <laughs> heard that one before. <laughs> i think that <laughs> I think that works for me. <laughs> <Good>. Awesome. <Okay. laughs> That's what I was hoping for. <laughs> okay. I mean, I... I and you yeah, can kind of go in. No, no, stay here for a second. What okay. do you got? Yeah, I mean, because, like, once you have this insight, like, what I find really great is, like, how we can make all of those ontological layers real. Like, you can flesh it out into a metaphysics that you can actually inhabit. 
like once you you go back to the traditional cosmologies that we talked about earlier gareth with like potential at the bottom of things and then intelligibility that will shape all of that potential to create beings at all of those different layers like from particles right. to cells to humans to societies to like ecosystems like all of those layers become real like you don't have to like be skeptical of morality like nietzsche you don't have to uh, like be a sort of richard dawkins reductionist of all things down to genes let's say you can say that all of those layers are real right so uh, the intuition is that this and i'm still trying to figure out how this works because mm-hmm. again you you're saying so that there's there's a there are actual constraints but to say that there are actual constraints are there limited actual constraints or because again if, if there's limited actual constraints for for the manifestation of reality then it would seem that you can you can find the bedrock of like you could eventually solve the problem you could eventually see god you could eventually fully understand the way everything works you could eventually reach the bottom of math where you do have a system that represents all of reality they they do have to be infinite and the way that um, and language can get tricky and sometimes we take shortcuts so that things aren't too long but in the same way that when I, I, I didn't want to speak about the father as potential itself, I want I, I want to say that, okay, strictly speaking, the father is the ground of potential. Similarly, you don't want to say that the logos is, let's say, just all of the structures of intelligibility. You want to say that he is that which gives rise to the structures of intelligibility. And definitely, there will be like an infinite number of, of patterns. of intel- Even just in the created world that we see, there are an infinity of patterns, like for sure. Like there's even like that's another cool thing that happened in mathematics around the time of Gödel. I think a few decades before Gödel, but there's a Georg Cantor. I don't remember which country he was from, but he showed that there's actually layers of infinity. Like and you can have like infinities that are infinitely bigger than the lower yeah. infinities, yeah, 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 and yeah. it just keeps going infinitely. <laughs> so <laughs> like the, I think. So, so it means that uh, even for let's say the structures of intelligibility that shape the potential in the world, right. like there's an infinite chain of like infinite like layers of this intelligibility. I think I don't think it's exhaustible any more than the potential of the ground layer of physics is exhaustible. Yeah, it, it, or or the relationship between math and the universe, or the relationship between the left and the right brain over a paradox. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I think, think it's exactly what you mentioned earlier with Gödel. Like, there's no finite system. Like there's no finite intelligible systems. Like it always, it just keeps going up and up and up and up into the logos. Right. Okay. I, I, I so I want to get into the resurrection, but before we, mm-hmm. before we get there, I, I want to just do two kind of brief, um, more examples about the nothingness being yeah. kind of, kind of saving. And maybe, maybe we can get, a. I mean, it's still kind of a fuzzy concept for me, but at least I can kind of narratively grasp it in, well, in the Lion King for one thing anyways. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it's a good example because Again, everybody everybody knows this story. This is basically yeah. one of our in the north, in the northwest, uh, our, our cultural myths. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, in that story, you've got Simba, who is like he's the protagonist. He's you, he's the main character, and he has he's presented with this opportunity to be the king, right? And he's yeah. he's he has a grand idea of what that means. He watches his father like roar, do a super big roar, which is to him it's like the coolest thing ever and he sees him like kicking all these different uh bad guys in the butt and just being super badass and he's like 
he that's about as far as his understanding of it goes it's, just, it's a pretty simple understanding of what being like the heroic father this intelligible concept of being a hero is mm-hmm. and he like wants to act that out so he starts i mean he develops an idea of what it means to be a hero what it means to be the king and he goes mm-hmm. out and he immediately i mean <laughs> he breaks the rules and he goes out into into the wild to go and start doing this and he yeah. like starts I mean, there's there's this opening dance sequence where he's just singing a song. I can't wait to be king. And then, obviously, there's kind of a foreshadowing of what's going to happen. Is like he he he's kind of wrangling up all the animals, and then they just fall down, and it's total chaos. But I mean, at, at this point, he's still very just. He's kind of just having fun in the universe. He doesn't see the consequences of his actions, and he doesn't see them until his like role playing of what he thinks being a hero goes a little bit too far. When he you know he, first first of all he goes out and he kind of meets the hyenas and he. Uh, explores a little bit into the Badlands and realizes there's a little bit of a limit there, but he still continues to kind of want to... After that, he's, he's kind of a little bit frustrated and he, he wants to go over. He goes down into the uh, into the valley, which again is a very symbolic location for this to happen. He goes into the valley and is kind of... I think he's practicing his roar. And it's as, again, he's trying to act out this inferior understanding of what it means to be king. That mm. I mean, he sh- He's not supposed to be in the valley, I don't think. And, uh, and, and then there's this stampede and due to his own negligence, his ignorance, and his acting out what he thinks it means to be a hero, before he's ready, his father dies. You know, it's, it's literally due to his actions. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't directly kill his father, but he understands the connection between his actions and the, the death of his father, and obviously that's very upsetting. And so, I mean, he ha- that's a really relatable story up to that point. It's like, okay, we all grow up with a little bit of an understanding of what it means to be human and how we're supposed to live. And at a certain point, that understanding totally just knocks us mm-hmm. on our butt. And it's like, we realize we don't get it. And there's a, there's a retreat that happens there. It's like, okay, usually you get so frustrated with life that you just want to totally run away from responsibility. And you have this experience of basically what you, you, you go and embrace some level of nihilism. And that's exactly what Simba does, right? He, he runs off into into the forest he runs off into the uh into the woods which is like into nature into into the into the maternal into mother nature he goes and returns to the womb where he's stopped being a human Mm -hmm. and he's just gonna leave his role that he's playing totally to the side and just go and i mean he's not thinking about being reborn at this point he just wants to escape his responsibilities and then he even embraces this philosophy of of not caring about anything of hukuna matata right yeah no worries i'm not going to worry about anything i'm not going to try to constrain my behavior at all i'm not going to try and live out any particular principles i'm just whatever goes goes i'm just total nothingness yeah is he lion eating insects yeah (laughs) yeah he's not acting the way a lion usually what he's just which is weird. Yeah, he's, he's not following like a even an instinct. He's just below all that. It's just total chaos. Yeah. It's just randomness. It's just, and he's hanging out with with a with a meerkat and a wild boar, which is not a usual kind of friend for a lion. But I mean, that even further speaks to like the understanding of of what how a lion is supposed to act. Like, anyways, he's there anyways, and it's it's mm-hmm. from that perspective that where he's totally he stopped trying to be a king, where he's able to then begin to see what it really means to be king. And uh, the responsibility is is presented to him from, from well, especially it's presented to him from uh, Nala. She comes back and, and kind of presents. There's a real need, and this is what being a king actually looks like. It means coming back and standing up for your people against Scar. And this is specifically what it means. Mm-hmm. And like he's he's given a new practical view of what it means to be king, and and he acts it out. And he's you know 
we've gone full circle. He's made his arc, and now, now he's entered back into being king. But I mean, it's going to be cyclical because even though he's he now has a new model for being king, it's probably not enough. He's going to have to he's going to have to continue to descend into nothingness. But now he has a relationship with nothingness. Now he understands Akuna Matata, and he can return to Sanyata and and be rebuilt constantly whenever he runs into a situation where his his intelligible understanding of how to be king fails him he kind of return to that state and allow himself to be rebuilt mm-hmm. yeah and i think the the step where he beats scar at the end is yeah. also important for like this final step of transcending death because i mean it's, it's scar who killed his father and almost got him killed as well like mm-hmm. this, this first encounter with death that made him retreat like ultimately he has to go back down to death but now transcend it and like take the the place that this is by going through Scar and the hyenas and all of those other people. And even like the entire kingdom had become death by that point. Yeah. Like uh, uh, the entire thing was dying. So like these, it's like you can say that Simba sort of went into death when he wasn't ready, when he was too young, mm-hmm. and like he had to retreat. But as he did that, then death was spreading for the kingdom, and then what he had to do was to go again like through death, but this time actually make it through and like destroy it and then reestablish the kingdom. Yeah. Which, so you would say that he does, well, I, there's like two moments of him doing it. I'm not sure how to distinguish that because like yeah. he, he first, he, he meets Timon and Pumbaa and he's like, he, maybe that's just kind of the more, um, the positive side of death anyways. It's like a very comfortable, uh, lazy, like it, it, there's no constraints on it. There's no expectations. It's just like he it's learns. Let's see the positive side of potential. Yeah. And then, and then he's, once he understands the positive side of potential, then he's, able to face the negative side of potential or the negative side of death which I mean, it, it seems weird to, to associate death and potential maybe if, if you haven't heard that association before yeah. but like if you think about it the only way you're able to create new things I mean even if you've got building blocks or Lincoln logs if you, the only way to make new structures is to tear everything up so that way you can now make some new idea right yeah. I was even thinking about this. One more brief example. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was thinking about, because yesterday was Mother's Day, um, and I was just thinking about sort of the symbolism of the role of a mother. And I want to even write something about mm-hmm. this, because it was, it, was, mm-hmm. it was good. It, it, we, last time we talked about how mother and, and matter, those are the same root word. And they, yeah. have, they have both have to do sort of, there's a, there's a really ancient association with, well, I mean, obviously, even just biologically, it's just in the womb, that's where, that's where you're being formed. And that's where like the father puts his seed into the mother and then it's it, it's like it returns to a state of not not being so that way it can then be formed into a new uh a new individual but i mean what i'm thinking mm-hmm. about a lot of times growing up where like especially kind of relating to the simba story i had like expectations for how i was supposed to act or especially how my day was gonna go i had a rough relationship with expectations for like plans and whatever mm-hmm. my expectations for how the day was gonna go didn't work out i got really frustrated and really upset and i would have a temper tantrum and the i mean the, i i made it through it in various different ways but i remember as a really young kid the one of the most surefire ways of helping me to get through those situations was literally the hug of my mom mm-hmm. and it's like there's even a symbolic thing where it's like you know she's holding you now so there's this almost like this structure, this circular structure that holds you up so you can return to this state of nothingness. It's like an egg, you know, she, she takes you back or, or a womb. She takes you back into her womb. And there's even little kind of signals that she'll make where it's like, like just a calming voice or even my mom used to go, which I even, when I, when I say that sound now, it triggers something cognitively in me where it's like, I, I, 
I go back to the state of just feeling totally comfortable and totally relaxed. And I think that might even be a sort of a signal of like some of the sounds you hear in the womb of like the, uh, the, I think I read that somewhere, but that, like that's a similar sound to like blood pumping through uh, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Or like you close your eyes and you cry. It's like all, all these different things kind of return you to a state where there's just like you're letting go of all of the tension. Mm-hmm. Um, even the act of crying, that, that convulsion, of <laughs> that's, that's a muscular release of, of tension where, where like all of the ways in which you're tensing yourself up and stressing and trying to meet mm-hmm. a situation, you're letting all of that go. And you're returning to this nothingness state where you, you, you don't have a plan for how you're going to be anymore or how the day is going to go. And it's just like your mom holds you and she says, it's okay. And then you're able to be reborn out of that hug and go back into the world. And I, that's exactly how it happened for me. It was like once mm-hmm. I'd had that hug, that comfortable hug that just like that took away all of the expectation for how I had to be and how I had to act, then I was able to go and approach life again and, and do it and like, and, and try to approach a new understanding of, of how I should be acting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I think that's, that's a good, maybe, maybe we can segue from that right into to Christ, right? I mean, that's, is, does that kind of line up pretty well with your kind of retelling of the Easter story? I hadn't thought about it exactly this way. I think I like the way, I like the way you just said it and it makes it, it it makes me understand better why you explained the Lion King story this way too. Of like you, it's like there are good and bad ways of going into potential of like going into nihility. Uh, if like you can fall into the non-being of death, or you can fall into the non-being of like potential. Uh, and like initially, Simba went into the non-being of death. But then he had to go through the non-being of potential to finally go through the non-being of death. Uh, and what you said with your mother lines up, I think, in the exact same way. Let's see, in order to go through the non-being of like the, the problems of your day, you like it helps to go back to the non-being of potential. See, in in, in your mother. Uh, and I'm gonna have, I'm gonna try to see if I can weave that with the Christian story itself. At least the way that I had explained it was that the, let's say that the psychological and religious experience that Nishitani describes as taking place within your psyche, is something that Christ does, but narratively, like at like the the narrative scale, like in his person. So he he goes through like all of the layers of nihility that I talked about earlier. Like he he subject himself he subject himself right away to, you can say scar. Uh, and to also like all the bad stuff that happened within your day, like he do, he, do, he does this at like the narrative scale. Like he's betrayed by all of his friends. Right. Uh, he's betrayed by the state, by his religious authorities. He's um, like he, he he's tempted by the, the devil. He's tempted by all kinds of things he could do instead. He's um, like he, he's tortured. He's beaten. He's uh, ultimately hung naked on a tree uh, with criminals. Like he like. The, the whole story is him plunging into death, plunging into nihility. Mm-hmm. But in the same way that there was a flip that happened in the Buddhist story, there's also a, f- a flip that happens in the Christian story when Christ reaches like all the way down to death because he's the Logos himself. He's the, like, the very ground of constraints that we talked about earlier. 
that's who Christ is. So, like, once the principalities and powers of this world, once all of the negative nihility has attacked Christ and put him down into death, sort of brought him back into, like, the like potential worse, but he is just dead and sort of de decomposing in the in the tomb. Right. You can see even like going down back into the earth. Like once he reaches back down into that potential, what you see isn't just like a complete dissolving. What you see is rather a new creation because you've taken the logos, you've taken the ground of constraints that gives rise to everything, and you've yeah. put him back into potential. So like, what's right. gonna happen? It's just gonna like create new things. <laughs> so so right. like that's why you have Christ coming back from the tomb, and it's really analogous to. What I said with Buddhism earlier, where after you've gone through all of those layers and seen like all of the bad patterns that you're engaged in, seen all of your layer, all the layers of your being as illusory, and once you've sort of let yourself doubt all the way down, at the end, what you find is like there's still intelligibility there. You can just doubt that that death, and then the whole thing springs back up again, and like that's what Christ did by bringing intelligibility, by bringing the ground of intelligibility down into potential. What you see is like the springing forth of a new kind of life. So that's how I established a parallel between um, Christ and what I saw in Buddhism. And I think maybe one way to say it is that whereas we have to go through the two paths we talked about earlier, let's say the let's say the the forest and like and, and yeah. scar. Yeah. Like th those two things are different for us or like the world and your mother, like while those two things are different for us, for Christ, they were always the same. So by like oh, okay. submitting himself right away to, to scar, he was still like in contact with all of the potential that was available in the forest. And like by submitting himself to all of the troubles of your day, it was still like full of all the potential and comfort of your mother. So like he, 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 he did things like in complete continuity all the way through so that's why you see like all uh he's always flipping all kinds of mm -hmm. symbols and things that are happening to him so for instance he, he he has a crown of thorns like that's a a very ironic way of calling him the king of the jews and it's meant to be insulting but it's true like that he's the king of the jews and even makes that like a glorious part of the story it even helped the it, it has up the christian story that for Pontius Pilate to do this because in the end like it's it's a really powerful symbol for Christians who are persecuted to identify with Christ with the crown of thorns. Like the same thing with, like he has the, the sign, uh, Christ, uh, the king of the Jews on the cross. Like he, 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 they dress him up as an emperor. Like there's all of these like travesties that people try to push on Christ, but he always ends up flipping them back. And right. you, it goes super like deep. Now we even have like crowns of thorns oftentimes like ornamental in churches and stuff. And it's like, it yeah. doesn't, he, he we destroyed the negativity of that symbol. Now it's like a beautiful symbol of the passion of Christ. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the, and the crucifix itself, like the, the right. old thing <laughs> that was really yeah. supposed to be like, th this is scar. Like this right. is the, all the, all of the, the, the negative side of nihility. He completely flipped it. Like right. he, he, it turned, it was turned into his glory, into the greatest thing that ever happened. Like the, the cross, which is on the one end, the worst thing that happened because it's a going down into death, like through all of the worst that the world has to offer. But at the same time, it's the greatest glory, but it's because it's what grounds everything at the same time. So in the same way that this is the Buddhist who reaches enlightenment by going all the way down and then realizing that everything arises from this ground, like it's, it's sort of the worst and the best thing that happened in his life. Well, the crucifixion 
was this, but at the cosmic scale. Like it was the worst thing that ever happened that we did this, but it's also flipped into a new kind of life that is the best thing. The best, ever exactly, happened. yeah. Yeah. So uh, one of the things, I'm not sure if you actually said this, but I, I for some reason, this this was how I was how it was landing for me is that like the reason that Christ uh, rises from the dead like the reason that inevitably happens is because when you destroy like pure perfect meeting of intelligibility and being like the way mm-hmm. it's supposed to meet and you just take it apart then obviously every time you take something apart you get a recreation and it's eventually going I mean just whether it's like if you just throw a, a dead body into the earth and bury it eventually decomposes and becomes plants which then people eat and I feel like I'm talking about the Lion King again <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's, a, there's a circle of life but uh, with Christ it's like you kill him and then because it, w- it was already like normally it's like you kill something it dies because it's made an error it's living in sin or like I, I, I had this experience of like you know having as a really young person you know getting really frustrated with my day and then breaking down because my understanding of how to live wasn't sufficient for reality and so you know that was a result of like it had to break down because I actually there was something wrong with me uh and so then when I become reborn, I act differently. But Christ, since he is, whether, you know, historically or mythically, he represents this idea of perfect meeting of, of intelligibility and, um, and being. And so if you destroy that, it comes back exactly the same way. Or maybe not it's, exactly, I mean, because... Yeah, he, it's interesting because you want to see that the the intelligibility came back exactly the same way. Like the like the logos itself didn't change. Right. But it's human incarnation did change. You right, do want to say that recognize the, him at first. Yeah, yeah. I mean never, like really. It was always super confusing. Like he would like appear in places and then vanish again. Right. He would like people would not recognize him and then they would start oh, then they him. would recognize and not recognize like it would sort of go back and forth. And right. a good symbol to understand it is one that Christ uses himself, namely the seed that falls in the ground and dies. There's like the, the the seed that goes on into the earth will have to die, like the the seed will sort of be eaten by the earth. But the information that's in there, like the intelligibility, will end up informing the earth that was trying to swallow up the seed, and then like a, a tree will will spring up that is different from the seed, but that's like a new kind of life that was hidden, you can say, in the seed, and that will itself make other seeds. Then, so I think it's something similar to that that's going on with Christ. Is I think it's a Zen saying where there's and this is really popular because you know I, I, a lot of people were like into New Age or, or a little while ago, but like there's this the little phrase like um, if you love something, set it free, and if it was truly yours, it will come back to you. Right. I, I think that's even though it sounds very <laughs> like cheesy, I feel like it gets at the same concept of like when you and you enter into death, when you destroy a relationship, you set something free mm-hmm. that you think is yours, then you allow for genuine or like the real thing to emerge. Like when you get rid of your illusory understanding of like, or maybe you're just lying to yourself. You think that this, you have a relationship with this animal or with this person or or with this thing. If you let it go and you stop forcing just your own will onto it and your own understanding, you let that die, then you will maybe begin to experience something uh, or something will emerge that is like, that's deeper than just your, uh, your constraint, your understanding of reality. Good. Okay. Well, the I mean, that's 
<laughs> I can't say that dryly because this is like, this is the most exciting thing to ever happen in history, right? <laughs> yeah, this story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's really because the claim is super dramatic. It's that ultimately, like, this will encompass everything because, like, you, you can have enlightenment in individual person, say through Buddhism, like, or other exercises, but. There's no claim that this will ever become cosmic, and it's kind of normal because it happens at the level of the individual. Like it's something right. that you do like within yourself. And I mean, obviously, you can found schools and and so on, but still, it wasn't something that happened at the narrative level that like shocked people into it. Really, like, and it's really good to re remember the apostles in all of this because they were super confused by what was happening. Like they didn't understand any really of what was going on. Like at at the cross itself, like only John, the youngest, was there with the women, and then everybody thought that Christ was just dead, except maybe Mary. Apparently, Mary, like she had a good idea okay. what was going on, but like all of the others were super distraught, uh, and like they go to the tomb and they're crying and like they they really hope for nothing, and the apostles are sort of just brooding in in the room, and then even when Christ reappears, they still don't like right. get what's going on really, like they're because it's sort of the biggest parable, like the. It's a, you, when when you are reading Nishitani or the Dalai Lama, like it, they keep saying things, but it may not be that shocking because it. I mean, at some point, it's worse. Like you have to really like make a conscious effort to get into it. But like for the apostles, like they were really shocked into like understanding it and like not understanding and not understanding and not understanding. And it's only at Pentecost, so like forty fifty days after the resurrection, right, that like it finally dawned on them. Yeah, and you have to imagine them like. Uh, like they, they they finally understand the story. So like the it's described in the story as you know tongues of fire falling on them, and then they were able to explain what was going on to people around them. So you have to imagine them like in a room, like there I don't know ten twenty people, and like they're praying, and then all of a sudden they start understanding what was going on. So they're like, oh I know, like this time when the loaves and the fishes that was because of blah, blah, blah. and then this other guy right. like as this other inside, okay well he, he like he rose on the tomb and it links up. So like you have to imagine those people like having this all, all these aha moments. Yeah. These, uh, yeah, 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 and they finally get it. So at, at some point they they get that. So they've been shocked into the narrative. And now they're gonna themselves spread it, and they're gonna go through the same pattern that Christ did. Right. So they're like they're all gonna be martyrs, and they're all gonna found churches. Right. Like, and it just will keep growing. And it's never gonna be something that they can just explain and just tell. It's always gonna be something that they're going to have to shock people into having an experience of and having to personally enter into that narrative. But so, what's the difference though that you're saying between so these other traditions are there? You said the word you use is local. They but yeah. they don't. Why? Why is the Christian one, why does it reach further? Like, I mean, I, I can think about just having a tradition that's, that spreads out and, and like, you know, starting a religion, but there, there are other religions that started and even these other potentially enlightened figures you talk about like Socrates, they have schools that, that, that spawned because of them and their message does continue to spread out and, and it does take, take kind of root. Yeah, that's interesting because there's no, you don't really see the universality of the claims of Christianity elsewhere. Like the Nishitani writes this at some point. There's no real even historical consciousness within Buddhism, like of a, the idea that history will come to be like full of people who are enlightened. Like it's sort of just not even really a question. Or like the you see that the Taoist Chinese Empire didn't care much about like hmm. expanding itself. Like it just wasn't really there in the cards. Like they didn't seem to care that much about what was going on in, in like savage europe and all that stuff and 
well even judaism for some reason like they don't want other people to become jews <laughs> yeah they, they wanted more of it like initially but like the idea for judaism was really like purity like it was like creating yeah. a body that's how you can see it like right. god comes totally training on this intelligibility and this yeah. certainty yeah, 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 yeah. law law yeah 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 and so they had all kinds of restrictions all kinds of constraints of stuff they couldn't do and like it was making them more and more special from among the other people and like they can only eat certain things they have to say certain things they like they, they can't engage in certain practices so, like they become like a really specialized body and it ultimately culminates into christ himself um and the goal was that eventually it's through their holiness that the entire world would be brought into uh, israel but like it had to happen through this fashioning of one body but just come to come back more explicitly to your question the idea is really that like the sort of the universalist claims that you see in christianity you don't really see elsewhere you you, you see that in uh, islam that comes after christianity mm -hmm. um but it's kind of rare that you'll have this dramatic claim that the entire cosmos was remade by like one story and historically it seems to be what's going on i mean it's it's taking time because it has to spread through the entire world yeah. but this pattern i mentioned earlier of Christ dying for the apostles to get it is replicated in the apostles dying for yeah. churches to be founded. And then even like, it just keeps going where like the, you can see the church, um, let's say in, in the Roman empire dying as the church in Europe is taking shape. And then you can see the church in Europe dying as, uh, the churches in, in, in America, in South America, in mm -hmm. uh, Africa are springing up. Now right. there's like, there's a lot of churches underground in China and other places in Asia yeah. as Christianity seems to be dying in the West in general, but yeah. it, it has sprung back up in, in Russia. It's like, mm -hmm. it, it's all always this cycle of death and resurrection that yep. started with, with Christ, but sort of just keeps expanding. And now, I mean, if you think about the numbers, it's pretty crazy. Like the number of Christians that there are in the world, it's, it's very high, like it's two or yeah. three billion, depending yeah. on how you count it. And even if you count, like, even if you look at uh, Muslims, because still in in that religion you still have christ coming back at the end of yeah. the world to fight the antichrist like he's still a super important character in the story right. it's like if you look at like how much he has colonized the world like yeah he's like one of the central figures in the lives of like four or five billion people on the earth right now hmm. that's that's pretty good and it seems to be like <laughs> like really like making sw its way to like encompass the entire world i'm not even sure if um because i know within buddhism there is an idea of like uh, if you are um, a bodhisattva, like a person seeking out becoming a Buddha, uh, you have, once you kind of reach enlightenment, you have the option to like go and just exist in total nothingness, or you can go back and be a sort of a manifest Buddha. I forget what the word is, but like, or maybe that's what even a bodhisattva is. Maybe I don't know the terminology exactly that well, but like once you've reached enlightenment, you can come back and you can, you can go and guide others. Yeah towards enlightenment so there seems to be an intuition that like you want to bring other people into it yeah. though it's strange that it's a it's a it's a choice that you personally make rather than that just being the expectation for everybody yeah. <laughs> i don't know why they leave it up to you but I'm not, I'm not sure when that was introduced to the buddhist tradition or if, if even that is potentially an integration of some christian thought yeah i'm not sure that's a good question i haven't looked into the potential influences from christianity into that i know that i think it's in mahayana buddhism mainly yeah yeah but... mahayana yeah, I always mix that one up, but yeah. Uh, I know it's where it, it sprang up, and it's really interesting. I, I should check, because, I mean, there have, initially, for a while, 
uh, in the first few centuries of the church, there was actually a strong presence in the East, including in India and China, but uh, it, it died out. I, th I don't remember when exactly, but I think it had to do with like the Mongol invasions. And at some point also, uh, one of the Chinese dynasties, like who really clamped down and everything uh, like that didn't, didn't come from China. So yeah, lots of stuff went on, but anyways, yeah, bodhisattvas. <laughs> okay so it's got to go out everywhere it's uh, but the, the i think you even talk about this that it, f fundamentally this is not a provable thing it's just it's totally an intuitive thing that again if you experience it and you begin to relate it to to your experience it just seems so deeply true because it lines up with reality on every level it's like we're, we're pointing at all these examples of like the brain mm -hmm. and even like i mean as you're talking about this descent and emergence or this like death mm -hmm. and resurrection i think about the most fundamental mechanics of staying alive like breathing and the heart beating right it's literally that exact same process and i, I saw that there's great imagery of this um uh, an album that the band gunger did a little while ago um i forget who or somebody did some art to do with one of their songs but they just talk a lot about breath and like it's literally or they one of the main lines that goes throughout the album is every breath is give and take and it's like it's literally somebody draws this beautiful picture of like of lungs but also being like trees and there's like one is spring and one is fall because again there's that pattern there's a cyclical pattern of death and life in the in the cycle of the year but that's the cycle of like you can't hold on to your breath you take it in and you try to constrain it for a little bit and then your lungs give out and they like let, let go of the air and then they have to it's this it's like you can intuit this this pattern about reality by staring long enough at literally any part of the universe at least that's that's the intuitive mm -hmm. claim that you make if you deeply believe this is true that like that no matter where you look and i think there's even christian uh theology that or uh, it's like basically to he who seeks finds right that's 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 a verse I, I i remember when i was younger like wondering oh what about people who haven't heard about christianity how are they going to find god or how, why would god judge them but it's like literally if you look for god it'll appear no matter where no matter where you look yeah, St. Paul writes about this in one of the epistles. I'm not sure where exactly. Maybe it's in Romans, I'm not sure. But yeah, the fact that, I mean, and, and tons of philosophers have done this. And like we, we talked about different traditions like Hinduism and Buddhism and how they wind up finding things that gets close to the Christ, to the Trinity anyways. Like these things yeah. are fairly fundamental. And like the, I wouldn't want to say that it's, let's say, just an intuition. It's more, I think it's, it's, it's really interesting if you look into how it is that Let's see, fundamental shifts in perspective come. It tends to be more about, like, I'm going to give you something, and then I'm going to take a bunch of time to show you what you can get from it, and then you're going to adopt it. And it's even how scientific revolutions go, for instance, when, uh, let's say, Newton wanted to show people that he had found the laws of gravitation. Mm -hmm. Like, initially... It's not convincing at first because what what he, he gives people is like three equations. Like, look, guys, I found these three things, and like I can explain all of planetary orbits with with those three things. Yeah. But like by itself, it's not really an argument. What you have to do is you have to take those things and see how you can explain all of those different things. You don't that get from seed elsewhere. Has to like die yeah. and then reemerge in the yeah. the soil of mathematics or of astronomy or whatever. Yeah, yeah. You can sort of point to the seed from outside and make sense of the seed because the seed is a new thing. It's, it's right. that through which you will see things. Um, so it's what yeah. happens with scientific theories. When something really new comes comes forth, you don't explain it with different things. You rather try to use it to explain things. And then if you do explain things, then people will adopt it. Uh, and like it's also how 
people undergo, undergo transformations in their own lives, what will happen is like you will come to see the world from another perspective. And like, it's, it's not, so basically maybe uh, you, you have a conversation with someone and they introduce a new idea and this idea becomes a seed in you. Right. Like then what will happen is that through time you'll, maybe you'll see something or hear something and it will sort of ring a bell in your mind. Oh, I remember that this guy said, said this thing and oh, that's, that's interesting. I hadn't seen this thing the same way before, right. but this seed can keep growing. And at some point you will realize that you see the world more through that seed Mm -hmm. then through the rest of your psyche and like yeah. this is a conversion that has happened maybe it, maybe it has taken months or years but like it's the same process as newton convincing people that his theory was the right one like you have to like sort of receive the seed and like see what you get out of it yeah and it's it is that process of like you you hear an idea that sounds outrageous to you and you just kind of brush it off you literally just kind of like it dies to your mind but the more like it's like you've you've at least understood that as like a very basic principle the more true it is the more that as you just continue to live it will grate on your mind and it will it will it will take form it's like you can't you can't get away from it because it is true and it just naturally springs up like somebody told you the truth and so now you can't get away from it you know now and then you begin to see it everywhere So, so it's not just an intuition, let's say, but yeah, I, but I get, I get what you're pointing at. Uh, I just want to make the caveat because it can be easy for people to sort of dismiss intuitions, but it's, it's how any significant transformation happens with really, that. You have to learn to see the world this other way. And then you see whether or not it's better than what you had before. Well, and that's even the way intuition works. I mean, I, I remember at the beginning of, of my high school class on, um, uh, on geometry, they, they laid out the difference between inductive and deductive reasoning, which I always kind of associate that between like logic and intuition. Mm -hmm. It's like you can learn something via establishing a set of rules and then playing with those rules and seeing what they, what they pump out and seeing what's possible within that system. But you also learn things totally asystemically where you just observe the world and see what seems to happen. And then you kind of take note of the patterns and that's even yeah. usually the, the ground level below your, your logical systems is that you just kind of base those logical, those axiomatic rules on what seems to be true, what, what your intuition about reality. So I, 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 don't, I don't really have a lot of issue with using the word intuition because I feel like it is yeah. a fundamental part of the way we reason and know anything anyways. Yeah, 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 I agree. That makes sense this way. And it's going to help people who could be dismissive of intuition. Yeah. Okay, well, I, you, you go a little bit into death and stuff, but I think we're it's getting a little bit later and I feel like I'm yeah. kind of at the end of, of my ability, but maybe, well, I, I want to just read the last paragraph of your, uh, of your essay and then see if you want to kind of wrap things up from there, mm -hmm. which the last paragraph is, uh, I, I thought it was a very humble way to end, end, a, I think some of your best work, some of one of the best essays I think you've written, but you ended it by letting somebody else take the wheel, which is such a, a beautiful, yeah. I feel like it's a little microcosm of this whole principle of like you dying and letting something <laughs> else, which is, but uh, so you're this, I think the last paragraph is, is David Bentley Hart's uh, yeah, exactly. yeah. book. Uh, what's it called? Something in the sea? The doors of the sea. Okay. Yeah. I think, I think I want to pick that one up. But like, yeah. Yeah. It's really worth of, it. And it's super short. Like okay. you can listen. I, I got it on audiobook and you can okay. run through it within a few hours, maybe two, three hours. Oh, wow. It's, okay. it's, it's pretty short. Yeah. Okay, so that, that doesn't feel as much, that doesn't give me as much anxiety adding that to my book pile. It's getting pretty tall right now. And I would, I would even, like, if, if you're, maybe after the book is, 
like refuting other positions. So this may not be as interesting. Uh, personally, what I really liked was the second part of the book where like he jumps more into like how we see things using Saint Maximus and uh, other saints. So this was, I think it starts with divine action. Like it's the, really the second half of the book. Uh, sorry, it starts with divine victory, I believe. I'm not sure. But yeah, so like if you, if you really don't want too much like to add to your pile like really, at least like the second part of this okay. book it takes it's really short and uh yeah it's the best work i've seen on on this topic well also if, it, if it's audible sometimes that's easier to to power yeah. through too so I, I think i'll definitely read that pretty soon yeah okay so here here's here's the way the the essay ends and it, it was it's very moving so so david bentley hart says to see the world as it should be seen and so to see the true glory of god reflected in it requires the cultivation of charity, of an eye rendered limpid by love. Maximus the Confessor taught that it is only when one has learned to look upon the world with selfless charity that one sees the true inner essence, the logos, of any created thing, and sees how that thing shines with the light of the one divine logos that gives it being. But what the Christian should see, then, is not simply one reality, neither the elaborate, benign, elegantly calibrated machine of the deists, smoothly and efficiently accomplishing whatever goods a beneficent God and the intractable potentialities of finitude can produce between them, nor a sacred or divine commerce between life and death, nor certainly nature in the modern mechanistic acceptation, acceptan, acceptation of that word. Rather, the Christian should see two realities at once, one world, as it were, within another. One, the world as we all know it, in all its beauty and terror, grandeur and dreariness, delight and anguish. And the other, the world in its first and ultimate truth, not simply nature, but creation, an endless sea of glory, radiant with the beauty of God in every part, innocent of all violence. To see in this way is to rejoice and mourn at once. To regard the world as a mirror of infinite beauty, but as glimpsed through the veil of death. It is to see creation in chains, but beautiful as in the beginning of days. It's good. Yeah, David Bertert is quite the writer. Well, I hadn't heard yeah. of him before this, so I'm, I'm definitely going to have to dive in a little bit to his stuff. I, I'm definitely going to read through that book. Yeah. Maybe to finish, I have like just one question for you, because I, you, you told me that you enjoyed our last conversation, and it was almost surprising to me because I felt that often my points didn't quite land during the the conversation. But like you seem quite enthusiastic, and like if you have more pointers as to like what you found helpful, especially, <laughs> yeah. I, well, partially it was. I mean, even just what we talked about today as far as like mm -hmm. you can explain things and you can give very elegant, elegant explanations for certain things. But sometimes what really helps people to understand something is walking with them through the shadow of the death of their ideas and having the experience, like the shock of like having to engage an idea and work through it. And so, I mean, there were there were some things that you said that just really I mean maybe then to, to you they seem kind of benign and just simple but to me it was like oh that that made a lot of sense but there was other things that we where we got in our conversation that just were like I don't know it was just really comforting to get there and feel like you were on the same page and like walk through it and then 
ultimately the way we even kind of summed everything up, you're just talking about mm-hmm. the experience of practicing out Christianity, that, that when you begin to act out, when you begin to act out this, this pattern, this story, it will, it's true. And it's like, you don't have to worry about whether or not you can prove it's true. And you don't have to wonder about whether or not you're right. It's just, you will experience the truth of it if it's true. And that like, I guess it just gave me some hope thinking about like, I used to have such a strong sense of like feeling like I knew what God was. And I had a very clear understanding of my definition of like the feeling of God. Like I grew up in very charismatic circles and I I felt like I had such a strong identity and such a strong relationship with, with who and what God was and, and relationship personally with God. And then beginning to unpack some of that as an adult was very, well, very sad in some sense because mm-hmm. I lost something that was really important to me because a lot of the ways I had framed my relationship with God didn't make sense to me anymore. And just hearing this hope that like, that if I, that if I live out the Christian story that I could maybe have a, you know, a genuine relationship with God is, it's really uh, exciting, really moving to me. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it was, it was just you telling me to be a Christian that moved me so much. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Yeah, that's very nice. Thanks thanks for explaining. Well, thank you for that, walking yeah. through that, that valley with me. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was interesting. If you enjoyed this conversation, consider sharing it with someone else you think might find it interesting. Even better, try to find someone you think might disagree with something here and take some time to listen to their perspective. Try to have a meaningful, good-faith conversation. Practice listening deeply and patiently, and speaking clearly and precisely. I think if we can get better at this, we might actually change the world. Anyway, thanks for listening. I'll catch you next time. <laughs>